500 feet of windswept Long Island air. When my mother died, I called a local used furniture guy to come over and take everything out of the house. Occasionally, I see one of our things for sale in the window of an antique store or the thrift shop on Main Street, depending on its perceived value. I got $2,000 for the whole thing, which included hauling it away. They had to take a lot of stuff they didn't want, but that was part of the deal. I held on to my dad's 67 Pontiac Grand Prix. I keep it running and drive it around the eastern end of the island. I try to stick to the back roads during the summer season. The big stupid car has a huge engine. Traffic makes it overheat. Because it's so big and improbably shaped, people don't realize that the 67 Grand Prix was one of the fastest production cars Detroit ever made. My dad and I retrofitted with a four-speed from a GTO, which made it even faster. I let the paint fade into the undercoat, but I patch the rust holes as they surface. It's something to do. My dad never appreciated the car like I did. He really only got a few good years out of it before those guys beat him to death down at the neighborhood bar in the city where he used to hang out. After the furniture guy stripped the cottage, I stripped the paint my mother had put over the old varnished knotty pine that covers the walls. She'd done it to get back at my father for getting killed and leaving her alone on a permanent basis, not just during the week. I revarnished it and bought a new couch and a wood stove for the living room. Also a kitchen table and chairs and a bed for the screened-in porch. I haven't gotten around to doing anything else, but the little cottage feels bigger and even echoes a little, and at least it's wiped clean of the cluttered, congealed misery of my parents' lives. This all happened about four years ago after I came out here to stay. The place had been empty for a while. My mother spent her last years imploding into herself at a nursing home in Riverhead, my sister saw her more often than I did, even though she had to fly in from Wisconsin. I said I was too busy at the company to break away, but actually I couldn't stand to see my mother in that place, surrounded by all those demented, hollowed-out mummies. Or suffer the reproach I always imagined I saw in the contour of my mother's set jaw. It was also true that the company had stolen a great deal of my time, including the time I should have had for other things, and other people. My mother didn't like Regina Broadhurst, the woman who lived next door, but she liked everyone else in the neighborhood. They would seem to be all over the place during the week, then they'd evaporate on the weekends when my father came out east to stand in the front yard, fists on hips, glaring at potential trespassers. Regina was tough to like, and even tougher when I moved in full-time four years ago. By that time, she was pushing 80 and hard as a hickory tree, ropey and not much of a smiler. Her white hair sprung chaotically from her head in woolly clumps. Her hands, like her knees, were all knobby and twisted up with arthritis, so she'd point at me with her knuckles when she wanted to emphasize a point, which was often. I had trouble escaping her because she was always calling me to come over and fix something. This was a habit she got from my father, who would look after all the mechanical systems in the neighborhood, being the only local certified mechanic and bound by some strange force of philanthropy. Regina's husband had died so long ago he may as well have never existed at all. 
The house he built, which expressed the same ad hoc attitude as my father's, was always on the verge of general collapse. She would stand at the edge of the scrubby bed of wildflowers that defined our property line and release a single noun the way you'd send forth a carrier pigeon, something like furnace, and my father would swear at her and go fetch his tools. This was such a routine occurrence that when she did it to me the first time, I complied without hesitation. Like my father, I swore at her under my breath. Some precedents can only be honored in whole cloth. The people who built this neighborhood were all like my father. They worked at jobs that got their clothes dirty, joined unions, bought cheap furniture, and put statues of the Madonna inside big tractor tires out on their lawns. Many spoke with accents, or at least their elderly parents did. Their boys played baseball in the street just like in the city. Their daughters were mostly pale and overweight, though a few turned beautiful right before they flew the coop. The neighborhood, arrayed randomly on a ragged peninsula made of sand and covered with scrub oak and mountain laurel, was little better than a squalid summertime tenement for the first thirty years it was here. It didn't help that an old brick manufacturing outfit was on an adjacent shore. Their last serious enterprise was making rubberized life rafts for the Navy during World War II. They finally surrendered about thirty years after the Japanese. After that, property values got a little better as the houses were winterized and real estate in general out here went supernova. But even now, in the first year of the new century, a neighborhood like this, in a place like this, is a little like a guy in a cheap suit accidentally invited to a gallery opening. I said I slept on the porch, but mostly I'd sit at the table and smoke camels, drink overpriced vodka, and look at the bay. I had a bargain going with nature. She was supposed to let me do this long enough to get my fill before shutting down all my internal organs, and I was supposed to worship her greater works, like the saltwater taffy hydrangea at the edge of the lawn, the fishy, smelly flavor of the breeze, and the gaudy red-purple sky that shattered into a billion shards as it played across the little peconic bay. Late at night, Usually after darkness had completely settled in, I'd hear Regina moaning in her sleep. The sound was from the damned, filled with despair. It either expressed the state of her soul, or the lady just made a lot of noise in her sleep. But it wasn't all that great to listen to, cutting across the black peace of a quiet summer night. Happily for me, she'd stop after a little while, and I could go back to my agitation without the external soundtrack. If you spend a lot of time alone, you can almost forget how to talk. The language may be forming continuously in your mind, but the mechanics can atrophy. That's why I got a dog, so I could speak out loud without technically talking to myself. The thought of bumping around inside the little cottage talking to God or inanimate objects or my dead friends and family was disturbing. Eddie was a pound dog on the way to getting gassed, so he seemed willing to listen to whatever I wanted to say without complaint, if not entirely devoted attention. Other sentients have cut worse deals. The strategy worked most of the time. 
though it didn't entirely stop God or dead friends and family from crowding onto my screened-in porch to hector me with details from my massive ledger of failings and misapprehensions, usually first thing in the morning, with the vodka crackling around my nervous system, jolting me awake, my stomach in flames, and my heart pumping up high around my throat. Eddie's principal domain was the half-acre of lawn that separated my house from Regina's, and the thin stretch of pebbly beach beside the little Peconic. These he monitored on a regular timetable, nose scanning the turf and tails spread aloft like a mainsail. Occasionally he'd shag tennis balls I hit for him with the three-quarter-sized baseball bat I kept by the side door. It had Harmon Killebrew's signature branded into the rock-hard oak grain. My father had it stowed in the trunk of the Grand Prix, at the ready for incidents of road rage. Most of the balls bounced out toward the beach. Some went over the flower bed into Regina's yard. He was mostly indifferent to Regina, though he kept one eye on her whenever she was out there hacking away at her raggedy flowers. She spoke to both of us with about the same degree of warmth. Even so, whenever she caught him retrieving a ball, she'd scratch his ears. He'd give her a tentative wag, which I admit I never did. One afternoon in the fall of 2000, I was out in the drive working on the Grand Prix, which I did whenever the temperature was above freezing and below 85. I was under the car on a wood creeper when I caught a whiff of something. It was strong enough and strange enough to stop my work. Then it seemed to disappear, swept away by the clean, dry October air. About 20 minutes later, it was there again. Holding the wrench still on the bolt, I stopped turning and took another whiff. There was some...